Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the wandering book collector. And this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. I'm joined by the writer Marza Mengiste, whose book, The Shadow King, is set in Ethiopia in the 1930s, when Italy's Benito Mussolini invaded the country. It focuses on women in war, women on the front line, not only changing bandages of the wounded or burying the dead, but taking up arms. The Shadow King was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2020. The book follows Mars's debut, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, exploring the 1974 revolution in Ethiopia. Both books are as personal as they are political, as intimate as they are epic in their scope. Marza, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you, Michelle. It's really such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, for your books and for so much of your writing, the setting is Ethiopia, the country where you were born and that you left as a little girl to live overseas, now in the US. So my first question, Marza, is, is Ethiopia home? Uh, yes, in the sense that my uh, my first memories are from there. The, the most formative memories are from there. It's a place where my family still lives, uh, at least uh, most of the members of my family. It's a place I go to and I feel, I feel comfortable. Uh, I don't know what home feels like unless it's just a place where you do feel comfort and you have lived before. And so in that sense, um, the United States is also home. Uh, but I, I think that uh, wherever I feel safe feels like home. And I will say uh, living here in the US, uh, especially in the last several years, it's begun to feel less and less like home. Why is that? I think the political upheavals that we've been facing, the threats to democracy uh, really, uh, <laughs> If security is part of home, if that place where you feel that you can make memories or that the memories are cherished and that you're valued uh, is home, then I think this is a place that is getting less and less uh, secure <laughs> for, for me, but I think for so many other people in this world, in this country, whether it's economically or whether it's uh, you know, for, for many other reasons. But yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about that question. And I used to discard it, in a sense, as just a, um, uh, maybe not a frivolous question, but a question that would feel unnecessary for a writer, because we're supposed to make literature our homes, like the imagination is our, our country, our terrain. Um, but I realize the very physical realities of also existing. Uh, and that's also uh, a, a way of being that I have to consider. It's not only about intellectual expansiveness uh, or where the imagination can rest. It's also where I can walk 
and be okay and not hear racial slurs or not see a Nazi flag <laughs> somewhere. Um, and that feels like the world is getting to be a little bit more precarious in that sense. And, and I'll say as, as well in Ethiopia right now too, in terms of the contemporary political flux. Absolutely, yes. And so yes. where do we feel safe, as you said? It's... Yeah, if we count security, as home, I mean, home is supposed to be that thing that makes you feel safe. Then uh, I think that's a it's a really good question. Where where do I feel at home? But where do any of us feel at home now? Uh, which is interesting for um, you know the your podcast is a wandering is it the wandering book uh, the collector book, yeah book collector I was gonna say uh, book lover <laughs> that's how I imagine the same thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like where where do we wander now? Uh, because there's that that sense of freedom that since the pandemic came, we've we've I, I don't take it for granted anymore. Uh, so all of these questions of travel and movement and security and home have been really present in my mind the last few years. I I, I wanted to hark back to a couple of years ago when I was commissioning a series of portraits of African cities for. For Vanity Fair, and I asked you to contribute on Addis Ababa, and happily you said yes. And you wrote about a recurring dream you had, which charted your anxiety around not being able to remember the way to your grandfather's home. Mm -hmm. And in the piece, you describe the night you left Ethiopia, and I'll quote I was in my grandfather's VW Beetle. I sat in the back seat and stared at the dirt road through the rear window. I felt it taking me further from the only home I knew. And I was afraid that if I shifted my gaze for even a moment, I would forget the route. Marza, I wanted to ask, what are your strongest memories of Ethiopia as a child? Uh, the strongest memories are of being inside the home with my grandparents and my mother, my father, my cousins, we, we had an extended family that would always gather. So I, I have these wonderful memories. I was raised by an entire, by everyone. And my mother's sisters would discipline me just as much as, as she would. Um, they, they took care of me. And that's what I remember. I remember the birthday parties, um, all these things that are fantastic childhood memories to have, especially those being my first memories, I, I were really they're really important. I I, I held on to them. Um, I had memories of playing outside with friends, doing all the things that kids do, uh, and so I had something to compare to when things started to change as the revolution came. It, the revolution, uh, which began in 1974, was not my first childhood memory. I had other memories that I could look at and say, wait, what, what, why are things different now? Why are people frightened? Why can't I go outside and play in, in the dark with my friends? So. I noticed the changes, but I noticed it because things before had been um, so happy for me, so carefree, and suddenly I had things to think about. But 
adults were protecting me and I sensed that as well. Oh, it's interesting to me that that those strongest memories before the revolution could have been anywhere in a way. Their families surrounding you, birthday parties playing in the street, like the geographical location, which perhaps we give more emphasis to later in life, was less relevant when you were a little girl. Right, because family is mem- family is a geography. When you're a child, you don't know anything except the people around you. That's that is the terrain that you exist on. Um, I didn't know anything about what Ethiopia was, or I, what is that? What is a country to a three-year-old or a four-year-old girl? How does someone conceive of that? You you don't. What you have is your home and your bedroom the sitting room, the dining room, and the, the, play, the compound outside where you play. That's the, that's the world. And that I was very familiar with. Do you fear at all losing these older memories, that, that, that they're being replaced by fresher memories as those fade? Just like, in a way, photographs can often get in the way, kind of subjugate the reality of the memory, whatever that is, and it's going to replace what's in your mind's eye. I, uh, I've held on to them. Uh, partly that, that thing that I, I, that piece that I wrote for Vanity Fair was very accurate in the sense that I just was terrified of forgetting. I knew when I left that it was going to be for good. Uh, or at least for a very, very long time. And I didn't want to forget anything. Uh, and I wanted to take as much with me. And memory has been uh, central to my, my way of existing in this world. Uh, my mother, my parents were always shocked at the things I could remember when they went back to how old I would have been. They, they couldn't believe that I would I could remember certain things. Um, I don't think I'm necessarily special. I think that we don't ask children when they're two and three what they remember. We don't ask them, what's your earliest memory? Because I think if you asked them and treated them like human beings, you would hear things that are really surprising. And uh, my, I would tell my mother, this happened and this happened. She goes, how, how the hell do you know this? I said, this person was, did this, and they, you said this. And she said, you were two. Memory is, for me, uh, it's, it's been, I've just remembered things, partly because uh, so many, I've made so many moves in my life that each moment, each move has left these this other thing in a time capsule. I don't have anything else to compete with that place, that memory, except that's how it froze. And then I moved somewhere else and I remembered this and it froze. And then I moved somewhere else and that froze. So I think, um, I don't, God, I hope I don't forget. <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> so far I haven't. <laughs> I don't want to bring it up. But I wasn't just that. I wasn't saying that. I'm always afraid that a photograph from my childhood is going to replace my my actual memory. But then, of course, what is that actual memory? Yeah, I want to talk about photographs because 
um, they play such a significant role in The Shadow King. And your research, I know, had you sifting through photographs. And then on top of that, one of the characters in the book is an Italian photographer, Ettore Navarra, um, who's documenting the war for the Italian side. Mm. And his, his photographs become material for propaganda. And did you ever feel that The Shadow King was also about writing, writing as in correcting history? Mm. Uh, I think it, it is. It's, um, the Shadow King is as much about, it's set in Ethiopia and it, it focuses on women and this battle between Italy and Ethiopia, the war. But for me, it was, it was really a book about memory. The central, real central character was memory and what history chooses to remember and the things that get erased or get forgotten. Um, I wanted to write the book in such a way that it speaks to the complicated nature of trying to write history, uh, meaning that I, I, I don't see history as a linear, singular entity. I, I think of it as polyphonic, as, uh, as prismatic, with many different intersecting, conflicting voices coming in. And I wanted to write a book like that to push against this monolithic idea that we have of history, that it is one thing, this is what happened, and this is only what happened, and now you know the full truth. Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think we ever know anything fully. Um, and I think there's a lot that gets untold uh, or just ignored. And I wanted the book in a sense to speak to that. And is that why it's fiction? Fiction in the sense of, you know, that's the vehicle you chose. I mean, could The Shadow King have ever been a non-fiction project? Not at all, because I wanted to work in the register of myth. I, I was less interested in telling historical facts and more interested in asking conceptual questions about history, about memory, about who enemies are when the people closest to you are the ones who are hurting you. I wanted to ask those things. So it, uh, I don't, it would not have been written as a nonfiction book. And, and also the gaps. Absolutely, absolutely. Like that's the, um, that's the joy of, of the imagination and making it up when you have a gap, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, it does make me think of your own lens, not just Ettore as the photographer's, but your own lens as the writer and how you flip that in the book. The one that is so powerful and significant is, is when you describe very hauntingly the, the young soldier who's been hanged and the rebellious silhouette spinning in a burning sun. That line mm. stays with me. And, but then you turn the focus on the photographer at the edge of the frame, the thief of the moment, you call him, out of view, um, but a shadow. And I guess that is also, it's the gaps that you can fill, but it's its both perspectives. It's the point of view, especially the women who don't hold the camera. Right, absolutely. A historian looking at this would look and say, well, if there is a 
gap in the archives. I can't make it up. Even if I might suspect I know what happened, I can't do that. I can as a fiction writer, I can imagine what might logically have been possible. And that is really a gift that I appreciate with fiction. Marza, in, in both of your books, you take on these really dramatic political upheavals and big themes like patriotism and, and territorialism. And then you also cover the graphic nature of war and revolution, frontline fighting and punishment and, and rape as a tool of war and exile, of course, and, and imprisonment. How did this writing come about? Was it meticulous research or a strong imagination? It was way too much research in the beginning. <laughs> it was a lot of research, maybe too much, because I should have in the beginning relied more on my imagination. Um, but I, I was so invested in understanding exactly how this moment had been documented in, in historical documents and, and in books, political science and history books. I wanted to know exactly how a particular moment had been rendered. And then I could look at it and say, but now I know exactly what they left out. You know, I didn't want to just imagine what might've happened. I wanted to know what was left out to see if my imagination could dig into that gap even you know, more thoroughly. Um, so I think though that uh, in the next and in, in the later drafts of the book, I, I really relied on my imagination more because I began to understand that, as I had mentioned earlier, what I was actually interested in was not the historical facts of a moment, but the questions that that moment raised about these things that bind all of us, you know, questions of fear and loyalty and love and, and what makes a partnership and um, how does a woman begin to defend a country when she's not safe in it? Uh, and so those are the questions I think that other people can, other women around the world can understand and relate to. Um, and so the his the actual details or facts were less interesting to me than actually exploring questions of, of what freedom and loyalty really mean from a woman's perspective. Well, well, two of the women, um, Hirut and Astir, you know, we see riding into battle and pulling the trigger. Do you think you feel as strongly about a place or a people that you could pick up a gun and fight? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. I, um, I think that's a really big question. I haven't, I haven't been forced to reckon with a kind of loss and devastation that I think Hirut and Aster confronted when the fascists were coming in. Uh, they were already facing guns and tanks and poison gas. Um, 
And I think they, they didn't feel that they had any recourse except to meet force with force. Um, Hirut uh, also finds that in her own intimate spaces, she faces a battle where she has to figure out, do I fight? And I think um, that when there is a threat that is large enough, you know, maybe we do the things that we never imagined we, we could do, that we would be capable of. Um, I can't imagine it right now, but women have fought, you know, since 400 BC. And some of these women uh, who decided to pick up a weapon and charge were people who probably never imagined that they could do it, but they were threatened enough uh, that they had to. Well, true. I, maybe it was naive to imagine that it was more about, you know, an ardent sense of belonging. But as you say, it's actually more about defending yourself. I think it's, yeah, I've thought about that question. I've, um, you know, one of my favorite writers is Simone Weil, and just reading her, her texts about, uh, about war, uh, about the way that force destroys everyone, not just the person who's a victim to it, but the person who is holding the weapon. Um, she writes so eloquently about the, the way that, that violence degrades all parties involved, and yet we do it again and again and again. Um, but I think that there are very good people who do this because they feel like they don't have a choice. Uh, I hope I never get to that I hope I never get to that point. It's really hard to imagine. So I, I cannot imagine what it, I can write about it, mm. uh, but I, I cannot imagine that kind of uh, thinking that there is no other option but this. Let's turn to the terrain, which I know we, we you've alluded to at the beginning about the land having memory. Mm. Another quote I loved, it is the land that carries our suffering when we die. It is the land that remains the same, no matter what we call ourselves. And I, I jump cut a bit here, but only soil will remember who we are. Nothing but earth is strong enough to withstand the burden of memory. Mm. The book is set in the north of Ethiopia. It's a staggeringly beautiful area, the Simeon Mountains. Can you describe it for us, Marza, and how you feel when you visit there? How do you describe that? It is a vastness that uh, I have not seen anywhere else. Uh, mountains, uh, just huge rock formations unfolding in front of you with these deep green valleys. Um, rivers at the bottom, the sky is completely pristine and the clouds, if they're there, are, you know, billowy and it's absolutely a majestic sight. And every time I go there, uh, I feel a sense of, of calm and a, a sense of, of being, just existing and being in the moment, in, in myself, in every way. Uh, and I haven't felt that anywhere else. Uh, a complete focus on, on that landscape. It's stunning. 
uh, and I hope that people, anyone who who gets a chance, will go uh, because it is Ethiopia is beautiful. Uh, the Northern Highlands are beautiful. The the South is stunning. Also, it's a beautiful country. Um, but the North, when I'm there, it's it's something else. I've never experienced it anywhere else. When you when you're there, Martha, do you also feel this weight of history and this burden of memory, as you put it? I have not. What I have what I what I have felt there is. I think as I write that the land has taken on the burden of that memory that I, I feel like I there's it's there in the ground, but it's large enough to contain everything. Um, I don't feel that way in other parts of Ethiopia and other parts where I have walked. I sometimes just literally felt the layers of history in a particular place. I can still feel feel it, but not there. Uh, it's the, as if the stones and the mountains have, have carried some of it. You've written also about exile so richly, being out of one's homeland, and including ambitiously Haile Selassie, former leader of Ethiopia, who's stuck in his big house in Bath, England, while his country's torn apart. Given your heritage, do you yourself ever feel a sense of exile? I'm part of a diaspora. I'm part of a large diaspora, so I don't feel exile. I just, I'm diasporic. Um, I'm part of a, a generation that I think when my mother's generation was born, never imagined would exist. They never imagined, number one, that they would have to leave the country and they didn't imagine a lot of them that they could never come back or they wouldn't come back, you know, because things eventually became settled in a new place. They became settled in a new place. Um, I'm part of a diaspora, but I don't feel that as exile. I was taken by your descriptions of memories, even whole lives contained in a box or a letter, for example, a Torre the Italian photographer again, as he scrambles to get his treasured letter from his father. And Hirut, of course, trying to get her father's rifle um, and all its meaning. And then Selassie, who at one point packs up his palace in Addis Ababa, and then at another point, his house in England to return to Ethiopia. All these tidy boxes, Maza. <laughs> Do you have a tidy box? Oh my gosh, Michelle, you're asking me not... Did I don't know if you know, but I just recently, just yesterday or the day before, moved to a different uh, place. So if I were to turn this camera around, you would see boxes everywhere. Tidy? <laughs> Not say tidy. Not this thing. So uh, boxes are important right now. Um, but I, uh, I... I thought about that metaphor for the box at the beginning of the book uh, as this physical, it's a, it's a weight that Hirut has to carry. It, it is a, 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 a physical symbol of the, the mental burdens that she has carried for four decades. Uh, and I, I wondered how much can be contained in, in a box 
But at some point, when does it become too much? When does it become too heavy? And without giving too much away, by the end of the book, she's struggling about whether she should give everything. Uh, and I thought about those things that we hold on to out of anger, out of revenge, uh, out of maybe mistrust. Uh, and Hirut had, had a decision to make about, do I give it all or do I just keep holding on to something? And in our contemporary world, when photographs are on phones and letters are emails, I mean, part of me thinks, who cares how they're stored? It's, mm. it's equally precious. But then I also thought you know, it's so difficult to delete the digital. Maybe we're better off because it can't be erased. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. It's just the on digital, the storage gets bigger and bigger, you know, soon. And we're, we keep paying for extra storage. <laughs> and, there's a, and then do we really own it? I mean, this is another question about when your memories are all online, someone has access to that. It's not just yours, as opposed to a box that you keep in your office. And they're, they're, it's more intimate. Uh, it's something you can touch. And there's something to be said for what we've lost with the digital world. Um, I've recently started, instead of emailing uh, close friends of mine, I've started writing them letters. And another thing that I have realized is in that process of writing, um, I have to re get myself reacquainted with the pace of, of thinking and then moving my hand across the page because that's also what a letter is. You pause and you think. You might continue that letter and then, you know, over the next day or over the course of a week, you're moving at the pace of your hand. So other thoughts have time to come in and there's a focus that's required and attention uh, that I have lost working on the computer so much. So all of this is part of what that box of letters that, Hirut is carrying contains, it contains somebody's thoughts, but also their recursive thinking, the, the, everything that it took to put a letter, uh, you know, the words down onto a letter, she's holding all of those emotions uh, in a way that you can't do online. And um, I, yeah, I, I wanted to convey all of that in, in that opening scene of the book. I'm glad that was your answer, that we're not replacing the epistle with the digital. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was intrigued, Marza, to discover that you wrote some of The Shadow King in Rome on a Fulbright. So Italy, the land in your book that's loathed as well as loved, loathed by Ethiopians as the land of the enemy and then loved by the invaders as their kind of beloved homeland. So how did it feel for you, you know, strolling around, say, the Borghese Gardens in between writing chapters? Uh, in the beginning, I was pissed. I was really angry. <laughs> I would see these monuments in Rome to the you know, fallen fascists, you know, fallen in in Abyssinia and the, this battle. And I would stand in front of there and say, uh, you've got to be kidding. Like, 
the, the other side of this war is that people were dying in Ethiopia for you know, Mussolini's quest for an empire. Um, but at some point I, I began to understand by talking to Italians, um, talking to friends of mine, listening to their stories that they suffered as much under fascism as all of the people that, that fascism victimized. Because the thing about these authoritarian regimes is that eventually they come and they devour their own. And so Mussolini might have had all of these men, young men, you know, shipped to East Africa in order to conquer a country. Um, but when they came back home, they were victims to fascism. They fell under everything that happened under fascism, including the, the Nazis coming in there. So I wasn't so I didn't I wasn't so angry after that. When I had to, I thought about all of this, I heard people's stories, I saw the grief that they still carried. Um, and I realized that uh, in many ways we shared similar stories. And uh, it's through conversations that, that we could begin to understand even more of the gaps in history. Um, and uh, after that, writing from Rome was great. <laughs> I, I loved it. I love Rome. Um, I really enjoy every time I go back to Italy. That's so interesting, given Italy is the backdrop to your books. That's, mm -hmm. that's uh, squaring a circle somehow. But um, yeah. I mean, on the other hand, just the beauty, even if there are monuments, as you say, to war against Abyssinia, it's just ethereally beautiful. The dream is to write a book in Rome and oh, you've done it. Um, <laughs> how about the next book, Marza? What can you tell us? I have read a little bit about what's coming. Um, it is information now but it, it is still well I'll say that it's still dealing with war and conflict and um it's it's set well I don't even want to say it's set during World War II era again and maybe I'll leave it at that because so much of it is brand new it's I'm still forming it but um I had sworn Michelle I had sworn at the end of Shadow King that I was never doing any more research and I was not going into this, but then here I am again. So I'm just- You need to set the next book in the future, then you can't <laughs> research it. Set the next book. The next one will be like New York City, my block or something. <laughs> but <Thank> um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm really, um, I'm, yeah. enjoying, I'm enjoying the process. Well, you keep, you keep that in a box for now, but I'm going to come and open yes. that box sometime. Oh, um, I hope so. I hope so. I, I want to um, finally ask you, Maza, about Project 3541. It is um, an artistic endeavor, really an educational endeavor. Um, it's a website where I am putting uh, photographs from my collection that I have, uh, doing it very, very slowly, taking my time. Um, but I wanted to create a website that allows people to access some of this history through photographs um, that provides some context for what they, what they are looking at. 
um, I have been inviting people to share their family stories with me, maybe their family photographs that, that pertain to this war. And I've had people send me um, photographs, uh, share their stories, and I've just, I've been really, really grateful for that. So if people go to project3541.com, you can see some of that, and this site will continue to build over this coming year. And, and that, that, of course, 35 is 1935, bookending with 1941, the two kind of yes. years that um, the war lay in between. Absolutely. Marza, I wish that project and your next book every success. Thank you for joining Thank me in The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you so much, Michelle. And my thanks to the supporters of the podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, to me, and Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>